welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast where we feel all of our feelings about Percibeth. And let me tell you, it's the Battle of the Labyrinth. These teens are really getting into it. And so are we. So we are joined today by two very special, very brand new guests. Please stick around. Alrighty, righty, righty. You know, I was really sad to be finishing the Titan's Curse. But honestly, the moment I started Battle of Labyrinth, I really realized that I've been sleeping on this book and I'm super excited. So, hey, Carter. Hey. I'm Erica also. (laughs) And today I'm so excited to be having two very special guests because, of course, the Battle of the Labyrinth features many characters and perhaps a many character quest that we are going to get started on in this episode. So, Jackson and Mike, welcome. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having <laughs> us. You're just going to echo each other. Tweedledee and Tweedledum. <laughs> uh, what are those? What are the twins from this book? That's me and Jackson. That's Travis us. and Connor Stoll. Oh, not really, but like. Oh, I thought we'd be know. like uh, Janus, the, the god of choices. Oh, I like that even better. <laughs> I like the that even better. The two-faced god of choices. That's I like that a lot. Okay. Well, so Jackson, what? tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me about your background with the Percy Jackson books. I... Just graduated from University of Michigan. Um, I'm so excited to be here. I loved the Percy Jackson books, and I definitely lived vicariously through them, waiting for each new book to drop. And I am now remembering the Battle of the Labyrinth. I have this weird relationship with it because I always thought that these books were a trilogy (laughs) and that I remember this fourth one coming out. And I was like, a fourth book in a trilogy? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, it's great. I love it. So happy to be here. Okay, amazing. Uh, Mike, what's your story? Why are you here? Well, Erica, you and I know we are we are friends. Uh, I am a geoscience student, <laughs> and uh, Erica invited me Woo! on. Another STEM person. Yeah. Um, I Welcome. I read the thank you. I read the Percy Jackson books when I was in middle school, and then also the uh, is this the Heroes of Olympus? the like oh, Roman yeah, ones is. that come afterwards. Yeah, I read oh, all those yeah. ones too. Those books got thicker uh, as they went <laughs> along. I mean, I was uh, I was super into these these books as a kid, and it was uh, kind of nice to revisit this. And then, uh, like I mentioned, uh, take uh, some of the insights of my geoscience <laughs> education and apply them to this yes! book. <laughs> I really forgot for a second that uh, Mike's whole life is rocks. When I brought him in here to to discuss the underground yeah. book, and of course, there's a huge, huge uh, tones about about Pan Certainly. here. So I'm excited to get into that with you, Mike. Would either of you guys like to share how you pronounced Chiron as a kid? I'm ashamed to say that I think for a while I said Chiron. Delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely stunning. <laughs> Yummy. Chef's kiss. Mwah. I said Chiron. God is damn it. Jesus. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Just is perfect. that correct? Yeah, that is. That's right, technically. It's fine. Do either of you guys have any strong uh, feelings about who your godly parent is as a demigod? Oh, I know. Hephaestus. Yes! Always was. Always. That's the best like, answer we've had it. so far. That's the least irritating answer we've like, had. That's what Ola so said, far. too. That's what Ola said? It's so true. Ola and I are twins, and I would be a son <laughs> of Hephaestus. You would look good in some forging overalls, Mike. Oh, oh thank yeah. you. Thank you. Oh, my God. Some steampunk goggles. Throw them on. 
I would love to one day stand at a forge with a hammer hung over my shoulder, uh, you know, other arm at my side with some sort of like armor that I made myself. And I think it would be fun to be like the coolest kid of a minor god. Yeah, that's where yeah, it's gonna yeah. be fun to be like a kid of Hestia, just to be like. I'll tell you what, my other one would be. Uh, it's either Hephaestus or Dionysus. Oh no, you said that you wanted to come on and talk about Dionysus. Oh yeah, I just think. Uh, he's uh, very specifically, though, absent from uh, this entire, if that's a spoiler, but he literally does not appear in, in, in the, this first part of this book. That's OK. That, that actually segues to my next my next and final question for you guys before we jump into the bulk of this episode is, is there anything that you want to drop about characters, plot devices, themes, uh, cringy moments in the books up to this point now that we're very deep in here? I'll say that this book did leave a lasting imprint on my mind of Daedalus. The like little triangle that's his symbol that I think in the last Olympian, they like activate all of these statues across New York. Yes. And they like find the little triangle bits Mm -hmm. on like that to me when I was like, oh, right. I spent a lot of my tween years looking for little triangles on the backs of statues. All right, Mike, is there anything you would like to say about Dionysus? Now would be the time. <laughs> I guess uh, I, I just thought Dionysus was funny because, um, I don't know, he's just like the drunk guy whose punishment is that he gets like drunk on Coca-Cola. He acts in a just very, uh, the way that uh, a king might act. <laughs> kind of like, like when I see it, when I hear about a dude that just acts like that, I'm like, yeah, that kind of rocks. Not in a, not in like a way a that king. he's being productive, but it's just like, Kind of funny that, like, people like that exist, you know? Like, I think he's a good caricature of, like, what he represents. Thanks for that insight, Mike. We've really been absolutely ravaging the name of, of Dionysus recently. So we, we did need someone to come on and offer that perspective. I think that's everything. Let's go. Let's let's do it. Ah! Book four! How did we get this far this fast? This is crazy. Happy to be here. Yeah. Glad they're in high school this now. This first chapter really um, screams loudly... They're old. It's it's a high school orientation, and we have both both the Impausai and and Rachel Elizabeth Dare making a comeback. Percy trying another weird ass private school in New York City. Although this time, like the reason why he gets into this specific private school is because like Paul Blofus, Sally's new boyfriend, mm-hmm. is stepping it up in that relationship. He works there, and that's how Percy gets this in. The families are coming together. That's. Stuff's getting wow. serious. Sally's big steps locking it down. We love that for her. But of course, things immediately start to go awry because um, as Percy is is trying to enter the school, he runs into these two cheerleaders, um, Kelly and Tammy, who we love quickly um, realize are, of course, monsters because don't yeah. they have to be? Yeah, they do. Page two. Page two of this book, who makes a comeback but our dear friend Rachel Elizabeth Dare. She's back. She's back. She sees through the mist. She knows that Kelly and Tammy are, in fact, vampiric demon specter monsters. Yes. Part beautiful woman, part donkey, and part um, machine. Myth-wise, <laughs> they are thought to be like the creation slash offspring of Hecate, the goddess of magic, who in some versions of the myth also mothered like the famous witches and like sorcerers i guess it is in like greek myths which is like pasiphae aetis um and circe mm-hmm. pasiphae is the mother also of the minotaur so lots of connections here in this book but it's a sexist character that's that's kind of 
That's yes. kind of all there Very is to it. Trope. I like that they're cheerleaders. Rachel, well, Rachel figures out who the cheerleaders are. She warns Percy, but there still is a fight between Percy and Rachel on one side against the cheerleaders in which, you know, like Rachel helps him out because she can obviously see what they are better than Percy can. But things still very much go awry. Like the, the senior Impausa, um, like ter- like ma- stages a scene that makes it look like Percy's attacking her or bursts into flames. So Percy is in hot water. And also in the process of trying to defeat them, Percy also has to tell Rachel, like, by the way, he's a mm. half-blood, Olympus is real, etc. To which Rachel um, replies, like, basically like reacts very calmly to and is like, oh, okay, I, I'm not crazy. I knew this. Cool. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> but then they flee the scene out the back of this burning school yeah. to find who? Jump through but... the window. Annabeth! <laughs> who, we, we skipped over this, but in the very opening scene, uh, when Percy is getting driven to school with his mom, his mom's like, so, your date with Annabeth later. <laughs> and Percy's like, it's not a date, mom. It clearly um, is. Which it is clearly is adorable. a date. Just so we're all on the same page. So he's like, okay. <laughs> and Annabeth sees Percy fleeing a burning fleeing the school she doesn't realize it's burning at first with a girl trailing behind who she notes is kind of pretty huh said girl also writes her number on percy's hand in sharpie before she runs back into the burning building did this not happen before like last book this is the second time this is happening whatever but annabeth maybe it could be said that she overreacts like ever so slightly but i think that i think that it's okay because her expectation for this day is not how it ends up going she sees the building is burning she's like percy what the frick did you do um and they're like well i guess our movie date basically is canceled and we have to go back to camp half-blood irritating dumb boy should have joined the hunters, joined the hunters. we've all made mistakes <laughs> i i thought it was a pretty alpha move i thought that was rachel being well, she, yeah, she is and, she's shooting uh, her shot shooting she's not waiting shot. for anyone she's saying like I'm not like the other well, girls. I just think it's great also because demigods don't have cell phones because apparently that's how monsters track them. Right. Yes. So yes. It's Ooh, There's like an element of danger Ooh, to writing the phone number. I didn't even think well, about she that. Doesn't know, she doesn't know about the element of danger. But Percy does. But Percy knows about the element of danger and he keeps it there. That's true. That's a... Mm, hmm. Interesting. But yeah, I, I let, Rachel, she's doing it. She's doing her best, and, and that's fine. And we also haven't gotten her perspective yet. We don't know what her thoughts are on Percy yet. We just know that, obviously, she just had a life-changing event where somebody just validated all of her, like, biggest fears and, like, biggest secrets. So, like, she needs more answers. Um, and this is the second time that he is, like, running away from her through a flaming building. So, like, <laughs> I get it. Um, but Annabeth is irritated, and, and I get it. I'm also with Annabeth on this one. Let's place the blame on And Percy also is immediately after irritated himself because Annabeth casually mentions things about Luke and Percy has the nerve at this point to be like, I didn't like that. Annabeth is so jealous. Gross. Oh, also, I don't want to glaze over this. Uh, if you're reading these books along with us in 2020, there is a line that Rick gives us about how um, Kelly... It, right, yes. it's Kelly, who is the senior cheerleader, mm-hmm. is um, a black yes. character specifically, and Rick says that her hair looks like Medusa's hair, which yeah, I don't that love. Was, what was Rick doing there? Um, so I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> they're on the cab ride over to camp. Annabeth and Percy are having a fight. A lot of jealousy. We find we we recap that Nico's still missing, um, which is important. And we, we we set the scene for what camp is like um, as summer's beginning this time, which is sort of the same, 
we still have activities, but it's different. There's fewer campers. There's tension in the air. Rick is trying to remind us that, like, of course, the stakes need to be elevated this time around as well. Things are getting worse. You should be more afraid. Yeah, we left, we left off on Titan's Curse, if you don't remember, with the knowledge that Luke is probably going to try and attack Camp Half-Blood. We know that that's coming. We just don't know exactly how or when. There's an addition once we're here at camp of a new character, or two new characters, I guess, <laughs> Um, Mrs. O'Leary and Quintus, which is, I really could not let go of the Mad-Eye Moody energy as I was rereading this book, this go around. Suddenly there's a new character who who is very mysterious. We don't know exactly why, what his background is. We just know that he's here because he's a friend of Chiron and who is like taking over this job post while we're here. You're, I think we are supposed to be questioning whether or not he is evil, even this early on. Yes. Um, because he also has a hellhound as a pet. That's which really is suspicious. Like, Ooh, evil. Yes. So he's just kind of suspicious the whole time. And we're like, are you keeping the body of the real Quintus, perhaps, trapped in a trunk somewhere? <laughs> what is going on here? My association in Harry Potter was Remus Lupin, not Mad-Eye Moody. I was just going to throw that out there. Oh. Oh, because Lupin's hot? I didn't, I, I didn't hate him at first. Okay. This is one of those moments for me that... I didn't realize 10 years after having read the books for the first time that I still remembered the name of the Hellhound. But then like from deep within my brain, it was like, oh, Mrs. O'Leary, of course, O'Leary. Mrs. O'Leary. <laughs> I was suspicious, or I, suppose, I am suspicious of Quintus. He, yeah, he sketches me out. However, Mrs. O'Leary, I'm in full oh, support. Oh, yeah. She rocks and her and Tyson get along really well, which makes me happy. I like when they're, like, rolling around together. That's such a, a great, pleasant moment. Yeah. I also wanted to point out about Quintus before we move on from him. As he mentions, when Percy is so confused by him, he's, like, the first adult demigod that we've met so far. Like, most of them don't survive. But this person is, like, maybe, like, middle-aged and a demigod. Wow, that's fascinating. Maybe we're primed now to think about Percy's mortality and, like, exactly. how everyone else, on like, at camp is navigating their own, like, relationship to the fact that there's a war coming and they're probably all gonna die but like maybe they right. shouldn't be thinking about it that way and they should be aspiring to someday be middle-aged right. people also to like, grow up like get married question mark think about the future um, yes okay <laughs> the council of cloven elders screw these guys man before we go into that exactly there is a moment where chiron just like plops percy on his back and takes off like percy's 14 is this okay <laughs> I was thinking about that. Like, is your camp counselor allowed <laughs> oh, to just, like, pluck no. you up and, like... It's, of course, not. No. <laughs> Kyron, of course, does not have a healthy, boundary-filled relationship with any of these campers. <laughs> no. He's a disaster in this book, in my in opinion. In this book in particular. And and what I must say, in, in my uh, strange defense of Dionysus here, Dionysus hates all the campers, so he wouldn't have ever, ever done anything... Subtly right. creepy like that. Right. It's its own set of problems, but like, yes. Because he's just disgusting. <laughs> he said he just like them. outright like harasses them, but you know. And like advocates for them to die um, in horrific ways while outside of Browns. But that's fine. Perhaps he, he'll redeem himself. Perhaps. In the next couple ooh, books. Ooh, ooh, maybe. Ooh. Yes. Um, Chiron whisks us away on his beautiful gleaming horseback to the Council of Cloven Elders session where uh, Grover is being tried for his right to his searcher's license because as we finished the titan's curse he heard pan's voice he went out to search for pan it's been six months and he hasn't found anything this is also where we meet 
uh, a sweet new character who I kind of forgot about, <laughs> Juniper, who is Grover's girlfriend. And I do think it's really interesting that the, like, I think Percy's reaction is like, girlfriend, like Grover has a girlfriend. And then uh, they're like, well, she's a nymph. And he's like, oh, that makes sense. Which like, hmm? oh. to me is a little queer. Is it uh, stretching to say that Grover is a pansexual? Oh, Mike. Oh, Mike. He also certainly is. That's the wordplay we live for. That wasn't even in the notes. That wasn't even in the notes, folks. Also, like, for real, Grover definitely is pansexual. Like, that is how he would identify, almost certainly. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But so... The, the meeting basically sets the stakes for us. Grover needs to find Pan within a week or else he's going to be skewered by this cabal of older gentlemen who um, we're led to believe like are not entitled to the power and are kind of arbitrary and tyrannical, but do do control whether or not he has a job. So that's scary. But yeah. we move on to this to, to go back to Percy's cabin and find that Tyson's back, cleaned up the room to prep it for inspection and is very excited Rebuilt to Percy's see Percy's watch shield. Yes. yes. Oh, very sweet. That is the thing I wanted most. Like, for me, it was always, like, switching switching between whether or not I was pretending my watch was, like, an Omnitrix from Ben 10, or if I could, like, turn it and it would become the shield. Come on, Ben 10. Come on, Ben 10 references. Yes. I had a small <laughs> geology tidbit about the, about, about the cabin. <laughs> this, is a, this is a pretty quick note. From what I can gather, they describe <laughs> Percy's cabin as being uh, made of gray shell-encrusted sea rock. Uh, that's some fossiliferous limestone, if I've ever heard of it. That's all I gotta say there. Thank you, Mike! Thank Good. you, Mike! I You're never welcome. knew I needed to know that until right now. Tyson delivers this this beautiful line um, at, immediately after they reunite. Now we can eat peanut butter sandwiches and ride fish ponies. We can fight monsters and see Annabeth and make things go boom. And if that isn't the perfect summary of this oh, book. Maybe this is an anecdote for later on in this, in this uh, book. But when I was, I want to say nine, um, my older sister, who was in high school at the time, had all of her friends over and they were playing outside in the backyard, hopping on the trampoline and stuff like that. And I ran outside and I yelled for peanut butter and stormed through the backyard, ran loops around all of them and ran back inside. (laughs) And to this day, when I see my sister's friends who are like 30 now, they'll be like, "Ugh, for peanut butter. So that's so iconic. That's such a good anecdote. Well, (laughs) <laughs> is it <laughs> um, anyway i love stealing my personality from children's books so yeah we get that tyson like basically recaps his year away from percy he's been in the forges there's a war going on in the ocean between like the old sea titans and poseidon that's kind of scary but we're also not going to deal with it this book really so it's nighttime percy can't sleep he gets a weird collect call iris message which is doesn't usually happen, but the, the mist and the fountain in their cabin is going and it's like, please insert a drachma. Um, and so he's like, okay. Um, he tosses in a coin and who do we see a vision of, but our missing boy, our delightful subplot, our angsty hero, Nico. He is like sitting somewhere, maybe it's the underworld. It looks very dark and scary. He's talking to a ghost. We literally, he's been lost for six months. This poor kid who was like, 10 the last time we saw him mm-hmm. yeah very young um he looks terrible percy's like it looks like he's been sleeping on the street he is getting this advice from this random ghost telling him to 
perhaps enact revenge murder on someone in order to bring Bianca back to life. Terrifying. We definitely, we're, we're afraid of the ghost. The ghost is, what, why is he here? We don't know who it is. Vengeful spirit who clearly knows a lot about like the underworld and like death and stuff. Yes. And influential. Has, has been having a, a relationship with Nico as he has been teaching Nico things such mm -hmm. as, such as how to Nico to control his powers, which means that Nico now knows who he is a child of as well. Um, and also the maze, which of course, if you are pulling from your knowledge of Greek mythology and also have seen the cover of this book, <laughs> probably know where we're going with this and who this guy I is. I will say, I have always been, I think the most fascinated with the like demigod powers of the children of Hades, only because like they're so poorly explained. Like, <laughs> but also, like, there's been no one in other worlds, comic books or otherwise, who, like, have these powers. And then also later, not to get too far ahead, but, like, in the Roman books, the powers of Pluto, I think, are incredibly cool. Yeah. I would personally love to see Mike as a child of Hades, just because the underworld, lots of rocks. <laughs> that would be, that is true. Or maybe... <laughs> Maybe you're a child of Pluto and you can control all the precious metals within the Earth. Actually, I have a tidbit on the description of the rocks around the river that Nico is sitting around. Uh, it's about the, the most geology that this book, or at least the first six chapters of this book, gives. Um, it, it just describes it as, uh, one sentence says, it's jagged volcanic rock, and it is also described as a black beach. And given mm. these two facts, uh, we can deduce that this is probably uh, some basaltic rock, given that it's volcanic, and probably given that it's jagged, uh-uh, and not... Yes! Yes! Yes, Mike! Yes. Not Pahoyhoy. Not That's, uh, and so, uh-uh, which you two might already know, uh, is made from... Yes, Cardinike for yeah. Hawaii. <laughs> Mafic lava flows travels faster, which leads to, like, faster cooling on the surface. That's why it's all jagged. Uh, and then it's, you know, darker. So that's how you can tell it's it's also uh, probably ah, uh, because Pohoyhoy, which is more felsic, is lighter colored. So that's all I got uh, there. Some sort of uh, basaltic... Formation. This is the most informative thing I've done in weeks since since I graduated <laughs> since I graduated from school. This is the most I've learned. On this the is actually call. like very like useful for me in like conceptualizing of what this what the underworld would look like because I do like I do have a frame of reference for like what uh, uh looks exactly, like exactly exactly. And now those of you at home can too Google, Google it, it if you don't already it's know. It's a apostrophe a a Akina Akina. Sorry. <laughs> wow. No, I think this is the most I'm literally going to learn for the entire online semester of college. So thank you, Retweet. Mike. Um, Percy wakes up. Apparently there's been an uh, Ethiopian dracon stalking the camp, which is fascinating. Scary. Big monster. This has been happening more and more. It's going to continue to happen. And what do we get? But of course, deathly war games to prepare ourselves for the future battle as <laughs> sponsored by Chiron and Quintus, which to me feels a lot like a Triwizard Tournament Mm -hmm. level of bringing danger into the school to somehow teach you how to encounter fourth danger book? outside. Something about the fourth, fourth book. book. Fourth book. Distract distractions from the main violence with, like, fun uh, <laughs> athletic violence. Although we do find it shady, like, that Quintus got these monsters, because that's weird. Like, that's not a normal thing that they have 
done in the past. So so after this, they're like recovering at like breakfast after like this morning of excitement with Dragon and everything. Kyron has Grover come over and talk to Percy. Yes, there's so much going on in this scene. Um, lots of information is being shared. Really iconic moment in these books. Annabeth comes to Percy's table, which is, to be clear, very against the rules. Does Unprecedented. Unprecedented. You are not allowed to sit at another table that is not your family table. And she walks right up to him. Everyone's eyes are on her. She sits right down next to him. She's not paying attention to anyone else. And she is like, we need to talk about this now. And then we get a whole lot of explanation about the labyrinth. So yes, this is the maze that we were talking about. If if you know if you know your mythology, Daedalus built the maze. He was kept as a slave, uh, yes, prisoner, functionally yes, (laughs) prisoner with a job to King Minos and Mm -hmm. Pasiphae, who gave birth to the Minotaur, who then uh, Daedalus built the maze to imprison so that it wouldn't eat everyone in the kingdom of Crete. Annabeth gives this incredible, beautiful explanation about the labyrinth to dumb boy Percy. And I will read some of that now, I believe. Yes. This is page 46. So, is the labyrinth part of the underworld? No, Annabeth frowned. Well, there may be passages from the labyrinth down into the underworld, I'm not sure, but the underworld is way, way down. The labyrinth is right under the surface of the mortal world, kind of like a second skin. It's been growing for thousands of years, lacing its way under Western cities, connecting everything together underground. You can get anywhere through the labyrinth. If you don't get lost, Grover muttered, and die a horrible death. Grover, there has to be a way, Annabeth said. I got the feeling they'd had this conversation before. Clarice lived. Barely, Grover said, and the other guy, he was driven insane. He didn't die. Oh, joy, Grover's lip quivered. That makes me feel much better. Whoa, I said, back up. What's this about Clarice and a crazy guy? Annabeth glanced over toward the Aries table. Clarice was watching us like she knew what we were talking about, but then she fixed her eyes on her breakfast plate. Last year, Annabeth said, lowering her voice, Clarice went on a mission for Chiron. I remember I said it was secret. Annabeth nodded. Despite how serious she was acting, I was happy she wasn't mad at me anymore. And I kind of liked the fact that she'd broken the rules to come sit next to me. Annabeth, I mean, she shot Rachel, shoot her shot, and right hit her phone number down on Percy's hand, and she was like, I'm going to come sit next to him at breakfast. Alpha move. So there's so much going on here. Um, there, there was somebody mm-hmm. who went down there, went crazy. Clarice luckily made it out alive. Huge feat. Um, there is a little bit more explanation here. It was mm-hmm. Chris Rodriguez who Clarice basically found when she was in the labyrinth, who, which is important mm-hmm. because he is one of the demigods yes. who we found out like defected from camp and has gone over to Luke's side. So that means that Luke is sending people into the labyrinth. Why would he be doing that? We're going to find out. But the only way to theoretically navigate the labyrinth is to use, mm-hmm. historically, mythologically, Ariadne's string. So Ariadne was the daughter of Minos and Pasiphae. She was immortal, but she somehow was able to navigate through the whole thing. So they figure that that's Lucas probably mm-hmm. has the yeah. string or is looking for the string. Annabeth says the labyrinth can read your mind. It's very scary. It's not just like a thing that exists. It changes constantly. But if you can get the labyrinth to work for you, then it can lead you to where you need to go. Therefore, solving Grover's problem of not being able to find Pan. So we need to get everyone in the labyrinth yes. now. So um, with that. We're like, basically, we have an established idea of what the quest is very likely going to be in some form, except with the one problem that they don't, the, the connection between the labyrinth and camp is still unclear at this point, right? Like the, the idea is that Luke is going to try and 
spring up in the middle of camp behind the magical defenses, but we don't know the mechanics of that because no one knows if or where the labyrinth entrance is on the campgrounds. That night neatly leads us after a quick page long goodbye to Blackjack that I found really just bizarre when rereading this. It's a whole page of him just being like, you're not going to be in this book, but like, shout out to you. I still remember you. You're important. We'll shout out Blackjack too, I guess. Um, but um, after that, we, 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 we have the war games that were um, alluded to earlier, led by Quintus. They're going into the woods in teams of two to try to steal things off of these giant scorpion monsters that Quintus somehow has imported um, into camp. Percibeth are a team to which, you know, Percy responds enthusiastically and to which Annabeth replies by saying, your armor's crooked. Iconic line from her she said, you drool in your sleep. Ah! You drool um, in your sleep. Your yeah, it's also Tyson and Grove get here together, um, which is like sort of foreshadowing. They do it to remind us that at this point, Tyson and Grover don't actually know each other that well and are maybe kind of uncomfortable with each other, which I think is a little forced as yeah. tension because of the fact that you might remember that a year ago we had the Sea of Monsters in which Tyson risks his life kind of constantly over a two-week period to go and save Grover's life. We'll allow it, I suppose. Um, so as they're doing this, Percy yeah. and Percy and Annabeth are going off into the woods to do this scorpion thing. And all three of the scorpions, three of three that are in the woods, descend on Percy and Annabeth at the same time. It's kind of overwhelming. They can't put into use the strategies they were intending to use. So then instead they retreat to this mysterious crack in the boulder near Zeus's face that they've never seen before that appeared in a moment of need. And bam, they're underground in a mysteriously large cavern that could not have possibly been there before. What is it? It, it is the labyrinth. <laughs> it's, but nonetheless, it is scary. It is like, really scary. I think it's yeah. important. It's really freaky. Like if you were to just suddenly fall backwards into the earth into a hole that did not previously exist there, there's no light. Like Percy uses the light of his glowing sword. Mm -hmm. Very convenient. It's a little like <laughs> Lumos action to guide themselves to find their way out. There's a sweet moment there's where, such a sweet um, moment. yeah, Annabeth's hand slipped into mine under different circumstances. I would have been embarrassed, but here in the dark, I was glad to know where she was. It was about the only thing I was sure of. This is also a little quick. Sweet callback to Lightning Thief, where we have the same thing happen when they first descend into the underworld. Oh, Secret tunnel. Secret tunnel. Oh, <laughs> secret tunnel. That was a reference I was missing. Yes, that's powerful um, stuff. Yes. Um, anyway, destroy me, Percibeth. Love you. Love to see you. This is going to like finally shift the tone a little bit more for the rest of the book after like they've kind of had this rocky start, the two of them. But they really pretty, pretty quickly, they find the Mark of Daedalus, opens up to the sky. They get their way out of there. But of course, once once they everyone finds them they're like you were gone for an hour and they were yep. like i was gone for a minute so of course we're back here with rick's favorite plot device of the time is going to get all destroyed in the labyrinth so at any point i can tell you there's one day left in the quest so you just get you just get ready for it <laughs> 60 pages from the end of course this is this yes. is this was the missing piece that we were thinking about right this is how yes. luke could invade camp potentially and this is how they will make their way into the labyrinth to go looking for pan and for daedalus and for the string of ariadne etc wow Stakes got elevated. With that, Kyron basically sends her into bed and is like, well, we'll discuss this tomorrow, which love that for him. <laughs> Truly such a disaster. Percy dreams of Daedalus and gives a little of the backstory that we were describing earlier. The Daedalus is like a prisoner to this like very evil, very rich, powerful king, son of Zeus, who uses his power to exploit Daedalus to threaten his son in order to get this labyrinth built to hide, you know, Minos's own son, the, the, the Minotaur, which has its whole own mass of like ethical conundrums built within that because of course, 
you know, parenthood, but also like it, like it eats people and that's not so anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like, basically we get from this that like Daedalus is like in a terrible situation. Historically, his family was at risk and Minos is like high key evil. And we're reminded that he is like the owner of the labyrinth. That's all going to be very important. As we move forward, we wake up the next day and Chiron is called a war council. Yes. Part two. We, this we is basically this. exactly what happened with the cabin meeting at the end of the last book, yes. except now there's also faculty members like uh, Argus and um, Juniper is there. It's 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 all the it's all Quintus. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ooh, uh, oh, ooh, uh, ooh. Um, it's all the people. <laughs> we 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 rehash everything. Annabeth's like Luke has found a way into camp. Percy is like, is she impressed with him? What's going on here <laughs> in his little narration? And we're like, Percy, Jesus, calm down. Juniper. Uh, Oh, wait, what did you write? Is this you, Carter? Yes, I did write that. Like, so Juniper knew this ahead of time. Juniper basically was like, I saw Luke earlier find this entrance. I knew about this. I didn't bring it up because it's underground stuff, but that's gross. But I remembered it because it was Luke. Because, of course, everyone is obsessed with Luke. Luke is seven years older than everyone else. And we're all supposed to think that he's hot this whole time because he's an adult and that's okay. And also he is. Anyway, yes, we're we're all reminded. Like, everyone thinks Luke's hot. And does not think the same way about him, including Juniper. Anyhow, this delivers the framework of the quest for us. That's what we're all agreeing on at this meeting. That Camp Half-Blood needs to send people down there to look for Daedalus' workshop. Which, pause, that's weird. Daedalus should be dead. He was alive in the time of King, like, Minos. That's That, that would be really weird if he was still alive. But I mean, scary. there's also gods in this universe that... There are also made with the mortals, so so I'm gonna go ahead and say this guy might be alive. (laughs) We wouldn't believe it if (laughs) he were alive, right, Mike? (laughs) Of course, we're not surprised. But at this stage, we're like, that's really there's nothing in the myth. There's nothing in the myths that tells us that Daedalus was like transformed into a a god at any point. Yeah. So it's a little, it's a little Mm. sketch. This is like non-canonical, definitely at this point. In some high-level. Avatar Kiyoshi stuff here just live forever. Thank you for bringing that up, Jackson. <laughs> Shout out to our my one and only Avatar Kiyoshi, of course. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so, so we have the quest framework set up largely because Clarice, who again like was a part of this earlier quest to to disentangle how Labyrinth works, what Luke wants with it, gets in there and says like, okay, this is what's going to happen. Annabeth is going to lead it because she knows all this stuff about it, but. Of course, like, we, we still are led to believe that this quest is far more high stakes and dangerous than everything else. Not because, not just because camp itself is under threat, but because even though Annabeth has read about it, everything we know from what Clarissa said is, should lead us to believe, basically, that as smart as she is, and as much as she definitely does understand the labyrinth better than anyone else who's, like, a living person who is not Daedalus, like, she's going to be screwed. Like, no one can actually, like, she can she won't be able to navigate it, probably, right? So that that's really scary. But... With all, of, with all of that, Annabeth is going to go seek her prophecy so we can get started on this quest. It is time for Annabeth to have a quest. She's been waiting to lead one. And so off she goes, and we're left with Percy in his perspective, waiting for Annabeth to come back from this very harrowing experience. Against the backdrop of us talking a lot about madness and sanity in very vague terms, it's probably a good time as any to plug crazy is actually a, of course, a disparaging term used to refer to a broad array of ill-characterized and ill-defined psychological conditions. We, we we do not mean to 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 engage in ableism during this conversation, but there is language that is included in this book that is very nebulous and does not refer to specific conditions 
or bar- like barriers that people might face under, under blanket terms of like madness, insanity that we, I guess, will probably have to use because we don't have, I don't think, better language to address like what happens to Chris Rodriguez and what happens sometimes. We, we to don't people. know exactly what happens. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Quick note aside, Percy goes for like another follow up conversation with Juniper, who just real quick says like, I, I don't want to talk about this while he was there, but it's not just Luke. Quintus also knows about this and he didn't bring it up either. So that's sketchy. You should have your eye out for him. And Percy's totally like, yeah, he, he's been weird. Like, <laughs> we, we will, of course, find out how he knows about this. But that, that's that's all for now. Um, Percy, later. immediately after this, like his resolve is so weak. He immediately is like, Annabeth is probably in trouble. She's taking so long. I'm going to go find her and make sure she's okay in the attic. Jesus, give her space. But also cute, but also more like give give her space. Like she she doesn't need your help. You're one. not qualified no. to do this for her. But Just, um, Percy's like, I've had a lot of prophecies, okay? So I know how this works. And this is taking a little long. So I'm just going to go check on her if that's okay. For those of us at home, Percy has said one prophecy by himself. <laughs> those of you counting. Yeah. But, um, he goes back, but is immediately distracted. There's like crying and yelling coming from the basement. He goes down to find Clarice and Chris Rodriguez in a scene that we are kind of not emotionally prepared for. Clarice is like caring for Chris, who is very dissociated from reality. At this point, he doesn't understand what's happening. He's yelling about people and things that are not occurring around him and doesn't recognize Clarice as she's like feeding him and like trying to take care of him. This is the most we've ever liked Clarice since that time that Ares was very grossly sexist to her and placed all these unrealistic <laughs> expectations on her quest. He's clearly traumatized. This also serves to raise the stakes for us about all that can and maybe will go wrong when we're on this quest in the labyrinth. Yeah. After this, turns out Annabeth, we, we can hear Annabeth leaving and we're like, okay, she's, she's done. We have a prophecy. Let's go hear it. You shall delve in the darkness of the endless maze. The dead, the traitor, and the lost one raise. You shall rise or fall by the ghost king's hand, the child of Athena's final stand. Destroy with the hero's final breath. And then That's she stops. It. She clearly knows what the last line is. And prophecies typically rhyme like in two line pairs, right? So the last line almost certainly ends with the word death, right? <laughs> like, we're on the same page about that. I mean... Do you have another idea of a word it could rhyme with, Mike? Uh, oh, of course. Um, meth. Meth. Of course. Meth. Meth. Also yeah. scary. Also scary. Yeah, they're, they're gonna they're gonna bust an underground drug ring. This hey. is my favorite part of the book. Sorry for the spoiler alert, everyone. <laughs> That's what's in the labyrinth. It's all and just... Destroy with the hero's final breath and bust an underground ring of meth. There Perfect. we go! Yep, yep, yep. yep I don't know. Yep. I'm, I love rhyming. I remember being upset... <laughs> when Annabeth withheld the last line, because it's like, mm. you're going to leave us here with two rhyming couplets and then one line by itself? I don't think so. Okay, could we get the final <laughs> line, please? I just have to yes. say, it's not two rhyming couplets. It's one rhyming couplet and one near rhyme couplet that frustrates me so much and did frustrate me when I read the book the first time. Our rhyme for the first couplet is supposed to be maze and raise. I would like to hold Rick accountable for that, particularly if he means rise. They're not performing a transitive action here. It's fine. All of that, all of that hullabaloo for a slant rhyme, Rick. Really, I, I still appreciate your oh, work, wow. but this this was this was a low moment for you. This was. <laughs> you shall delve into the darkness of an endless maze. The dead, the traitor, and the lo- sorry. That was my Lin Manuel Miranda doing the prophecy. <laughs> uh, are there any campers at Half Blood named Seth? Perhaps they're part of the prophecy. <laughs> we should ask. Or Beth. We should. Or Annabeth. <gasps> 
Oh, wait, that makes so much more sense. Wait, we're all really dumb. That totally could be. That didn't even occur to me. That took way too long. Well, I had to go through Meth and Seth before I could get to Annabeth. In our defense, the last line does end with the word death. Yes. Ooh, true. But it totally and could have been Annabeth. We talked a- about a child of Athena in this one. It would be weird if the if the oracle yes. name dropped Annabeth. Yeah, in her in her own prophecy. <laughs> that's like that's not normal. Anyway, there's like a few things in the prophecy that we probably we probably want to pick up on really quickly. We hear the dead and the traitor. We're probably thinking of Nico, the lost one. Is probably Pan. Could also be Nico, though. It could be Nico, maybe. And we also hear, of course, we could have just blew past this, this, but it just had the line, the child of Athena's final stand on a quest led by Annabeth. Annabeth. Yep. In addition to a hero's final breath and a line that probably ends with the word death, this is probably the most ominous prophecy we've had so far. Those are three references to probably death. Yeah, what a terrible way to find out you die at the age of, like, 14. It's like, because some old hippie woman told you. Like some oracle was like, yeah, honey, it's not a good not even year woman, for you. But, but corpse. Like literally a mummy. A mummy. <laughs> a corpse. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. Not cute. Yeah. Well, Annabeth, knowing all of that, basically demands that this be a four-person quest. Four-person quests are already risky. So we, we're combining it. We're going on a four-person quest knowing that this prophecy is telling us people are going to die. So now we're off. We're preparing for the, preparing for the quest. Quintus is like, oh, hey, you know, I have this thing I can that can help you, sort of the way that maybe Luke gave them uh, winged shoes in the first book, maybe echoing mm. that new character giving them a gift, yeah. which per- I think Percy is like, you know, wary of in a similar way, but he gives them a whistle. Yeah. If you blow on this whistle, Mrs. O'Leary will appear because she's a magic hellhound. Um, so that can hopefully get them out of a sticky situation if they trust Quintus enough to use it. Mm-hmm. And then for the first time, we get uh, this depiction of the Athena cabin as Percy goes to again break rules to go and talk to her <laughs> the athena cabin is super cute by the way like just quick shout out but beds are all pushed to one side there's tech there's books there's laptops there's weapons super cool space it's just percy and annabeth in a room by themselves gasp it turns out that like annabeth is clearly so overwhelmed by this because again you like it is intellectually impossible to understand the labyrinth through maps, which is what she's trying to do. Like it cannot be studied well. She's looking stressed, super stressed. But they, we get this moment where they hug. Then I'm gonna read. This is a little self indulgent, but we're gonna do it anyway. Um, First podcast. We're allowed to make your own podcast if you don't want to hear this. Um, literally, do. There's it would lots be fun. of them. We're all friends. What is it? I asked the prophecy. I'm sure it's fine. She said in a small voice. What was the last line? And then she did something that really surprised me. She blinked back tears and put out her arms. I stepped forward and hugged her. Butterflies started turning my stomach into a mosh pit. Hey, it's, it's okay, I patted her back. I was aware of everything in the room. I felt like I could read the tiniest print on a book on any of the shelves. Annabeth's hair smelled like lemon soap. She was shivering. Kyron might be right, she muttered. I'm breaking the rules, but I don't know what else to do. I need you three, it just feels right. Then don't worry about it, I managed. We've had plenty of problems before and we've solved them. This is different. I don't want anything to happen to any of you. Behind me, somebody cleared his throat. <clears throat> it was one of Annabeth's half-brothers, Malcolm. His face was bright red. Um, sorry, he said. Archery practice is starting, Annabeth. Kyron told me to find you. I stepped away from Annabeth. We were just looking at maps, I said stupidly. Malcolm stared at me. Okay. 
Okay. What I really love about this is that it shows that, like, sure, Athena's the goddess of wisdom and her kids are really smart, but they have terrible <laughs> social cues. The entire camp sees this coming. Yes. Is the fun of part of this book, is, and also the next book, is that the entire camp is like, yes, uh, kiss. Uh. It's the most, perhaps the most obvious romance choice ever written into something. Yes. You know? We love that for them, though. Yeah. Um, like, this is a, a sort of a 20, turning point in, in my mind for the romance in that, like, there's clearly a tension about risk. To, to spoil a little bit, like, in this moment, right, Annabeth, like, we do know the last line of the prophecy. Is it good to spoil this? I'm going to spoil this. The last line of the prophecy we find out at the end of this book is, and lose a love to worse than death. So at this point, Annabeth is probably thinking, if I bring Percy on this quest something really bad yeah, is going to happen to him literally. because that's how she's interpreting yes. that line. Of course, it ends up not being Percy, which is its own whole, huh, huh, huh. but like, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like at this point, like it, she's she, like, she should be stressed. Like she should be very stressed because this is her relationship or like her not relationship, but her feelings about Percy coming into conflict with their quest. Like it's not at the level of like, we are good partners who are maybe a little into each other who are good compatible questmates. Yeah. She's like, I, I'm maybe killing you by subjecting you to this, but like also please I and you. I need you. And like, it's just a whole, yeah, intensifying things. I think that the fact that we do meet Quintus, who is supposedly this like middle-aged demigod, has us thinking a little bit more about our future. And the fact that Annabeth might yes. die herself yes. has us thinking about the drama. <laughs> the, the stakes are just aging them. And I think that they're really feeling like this is like, I mean, it's, oh, I hate to say it, but it is a little romantic. Yeah, but they they'd rather mm. die. They'd rather die together yeah. than not together. I feel like that's a big part of this is that Annabeth, you can always try and game the prophecy of like if you're losing a love to something worse than death, then like maybe don't bring mm -hmm. Percy. But then also yeah. it's like if I do that, am I playing right into what this mummy wants me to right. do, which is to leave yeah. him behind? True. True. Exactly. True. You can't really trust the prophecy. No, you got to just do what you, you yeah. have a gut feeling about it. Yes. Yes. Right. Percy goes to sleep. Um, he sees Luke in a dream. Um, Luke, Luke is looking good again after he looked gross and like on the on death's door at the end of the last book. Luke is looking good again. He's looking healthy. Kronos drops a little tidbit about how he's beyond harm now. Finally, that's we'll revisit that. We can see that Kronos is rising. Kronos needs one more soul to join him in order to like fully like actualize out of that sarcophagus, right? But also like the the weird thing about this is that Luke is kind of not super enthusiastic like he sounds scared uh -oh. about the prospect of chronos rising he's suggesting a delay yeah. maybe why also kelly's still there kelly the impausa who can sense percy in the dream which we've never seen before and pushes him away mm. percy also in the same night gets something else yeah. like not a collect call iris message but some other communication from the fountain that looks very similar um he sees nico um again but this time it's a lot darker nico is literally summoning the dead with Happy Meals and Co. Shout out to um, <laughs> consumer culture being a way that we indicate modern America <laughs> temporally. And we get um, Theseus showing up here, one of the most iconic heroes who, of course, slayed the Minotaur in the labyrinth, very relevant for the purposes of the story. Percy notes here that the he pictured Theseus being like heroic, muscular, bulky, yeah. etc. Like he basically pictures Theseus looking maybe something like Hercules in the Disney movie, maybe. But like instead, he's like, he's not like that. He's yeah. like me. Which, first of all, wow, mm -hmm. on Percy not seeing himself as a hero, like that's we love that for him. But also like Percy's like a skinny 14-year-old. 
And so is Theseus. Whoa, someone's gonna die. Uh, somebody's gonna <laughs> that's die. That's what that tells me. Like, we're gonna die. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Um, Nico, at this moment, he's talking to Theseus and trying to extract information um, about the labyrinth. Theseus says this. And this is, I think, the first time we're hearing this, that, like, like Theseus had Ariadne's string, but that wasn't actually what was most useful. It was Ariadne. Mm-hmm. Important information for us to carry with us <laughs> into the rest of the novel. Um, and he also says, like, yes, the soul for a soul thing does work, which is propelling Nico further down this path of revenge. No, you 11-year-old boy, don't go killing people. That's really scary and sad for you. Um, oh, Nico. Also, um, the, the like, okay. at the end of the dream, basically, like, the fountain breaks. Like, it overheats, and all these other spirits are coming. Percy, like, slashes open the, the fountain ah. with his sword uh, in order to, to stop this. But that's really ominous. We're so scared for Nico, this queer child who just needs some mentorship. We uh, have this last discussion with Chiron before setting out into the maze via the entrance that they discovered. Chiron also, like, I'll cut him some slack. He's, he's a disaster because he's scared that his uh, evil Titan father is about to rise again. Oh, yeah, there's also, like, a possibility that's thrown out that's maybe Chiron's working theory of if, like, Luke is connected to Daedalus because Daedalus is building Cronus a new body. Um, so that's something that they're kind of trying to keep out of and, like, be wary of Daedalus because he may be yes. bitter and old. And, Dark past. And we're also kind of kind of like, yeah, okay, Quintus is a little shady yeah. at this point. We we can all agree on that. Maybe maybe be careful about using that Her, with Daedalus. Well, Percy so. passes along the warning from Juniper and Chiron is like, yeah, I know. Of course he's sketchy. Yeah. Which is like, shout out to you, Chiron, for hiring yes. this man. Like, it's not still your responsibility as the director of this children's camp. And then in we go. We're in the We're labyrinth. <laughs> Woo, we made it. We're starting the quest, going in underground, which for Grover is terrifying, and for Tyson is Woo. great. Tyson loves rocks. I wrote down that, that Tyson wrote, hello, rocks. And I was like, <laughs> if that isn't me, I don't know what is. Yes, hello. I, I relate with uh, Tyson hardcore, I found, especially when... They listed his attire as jeans and a flannel, which I can often be found wearing, uh, of course. I just love that the pairing that works out really well is Mike Tyson. Oh! oh. Got him. Oh. Ooh. Once they get in, we kind of suspected this, they immediately get lost. Any plan of <laughs> so Annabeth. So quickly. Like, poor girl. The architecture literally yes. makes no sense because it's it's magic. There's old and new tile and like dirt and then and then flooring and it's like they're moving through like they can hear voices above them and then they finally come across their first like magical being of the labyrinth they sure do it's 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 the two-faced doorman and minor god janice god of choices Hey-o. can i actually make uh one comment before this oh yes uh, this is this is the other deep cut reference i was referring to they they mentioned that they run into the skeleton yes of, of the milkman uh, Yes, of a milkman. And I am thinking that maybe Rick Riordan is giving a shout out to 80s comedy punk group, The Dead Milkmen, uh, known for their two big songs, Bitchin' Camaro and Punk Rock Girl. And uh, I so believe it. Rick Riordan Temporally might, that be lines a, up. might be a punk fan. Yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking that might be a deep cut reference. Rick, if you're listening, let us know. He's certainly not. Yeah, we'll tweet him. But. but if he is. He responds to his Twitter. So <laughs> Anyways. Janice is is our two-faced New York City doorman, God, offering Annabeth a choice. He gives no details about what the choice might be, but only says, like, the stakes are incredibly high. Someone will die or you'll be happy forever. So that's that's a lot for us to sit with. 
basically berating her, yelling at her, giving her no information, confusing her. Janice gets cut off by the appearance of none other than the Queen of Heaven herself, Hera. Who we are terrified. I don't know about y'all. I like Hera of all the of all the deities we've come up against thus far is the one who is the most like bone chilling. Ah. This one is going to be out for blood. Absolutely yes, she, terrifying. I think that she also like, she just, we have such a frame of reference or the, uh, for the kind of terrifying yes. that Hera is in this way of like wealthy woman who yes. runs her estate, who actually has no control over it. And Hera's like ultimate Karen. The ultimate Karen. I think we mentioned that before. Yes. We, I mean, I think of a very specific woman in my childhood, a, fr- a, a wealthy mother <laughs> of a friend who once tried to kick me out of her home. Recently followed me on Instagram. Wait, didn't she actually kick you out of her home? Yes, she did. Oh my God. If she's listening to this, shout out to her. If she is, she knows who she is. (laughs) Well... Yeah, I, I got very much like um, like Reese Witherspoon in Little Fires Everywhere. Everything. In everything recently. Yes. Harris shows up uh, a brunette in a white dress, which of course is coded for us as regular mom. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Like wearing pleated braids also because that's what regular moms wear. Of if your mom doesn't wear a pleated braid, she is of course not a regular mom. Pleated, I don't pleated love what? that. But she she shows up and is like Janice, it's it's not time yet. Goodbye. He disappears, and then she immediately is like, yeah, Janice is like probably maybe not loyal to the Olympians. He needs to know his side, know his place. Even as I totally disrespect him while he's doing his job, Oof. like I don't the classes. You can really see in that moment like why the Olympians are losing support because Hera is such a classist. Exactly, classism. like she. I said classicism, but I meant classism. But same thing. Period. Period. <laughs> um, she she immediately like uses that conversation with Janice as a launching pad into this <laughs> this this monologue about about family and misplaced faith. And building things in the big picture that lasts that is literally taken out of Michelle Yeoh as Eleanor Young's dialogues. In the Crazy in Rich crazy Asians. Rich Asians. Yes. Well, I, I, I had mentioned this in my fan cast. If Michelle Yeoh, like Michelle Yeoh is my ultimate Hera fan cast. Dang. Oh, I would appreciate that so much. Anyway, as she's like feeding them, she says, Zeus allowed me to come offer you a wish, Annabeth. I don't hate all heroes. That's a common misconception. I like you. And I'll help you out with something right now. I can do whatever you want. This is like a really big deal for us, right? Like, she's super powerful. This is great. We're off to a great start if we can just wish correctly. But of course, it's not that easy. (laughs) Annabeth's wish at this point is like she wants a way to navigate the labyrinth. Because that's, of course, what's going to be the most useful for them. That like would solve all their problems. They can find Pan. They can find Daedalus. Beat the Titan army to the punch, etc. Yeah. But Hera's response is just like, Percy already knows. I, that wish is already granted. You wished poorly. Like, uh, and Annabeth is like, that, that doesn't mean anything. Percy, no, he doesn't. He, he's a dumbass. Look at him. He, <laughs> Percy's like, yeah, I am. Like, I have no idea what's happening. Ah. And then Hera's like, no. Like, having a tool and having the wisdom to use it are two different things. Surely her mother would agree. Like, that, if that's Yikes. not the most. Not surely your mother. Oh my God. Yikes. Yeah, and then with that, she just like disappears. And so that leaves us yep. with no help wasted our one wish wrapped in the labyrinth my, my perception of Hera kind of kind of evolved throughout that scene because at first when they like described her as kind of motherly and providing them with these foods and it, it, it seemed like she was the sight for sore eyes but then at the end she like twists it on him with that thing and and gets all like I don't know talking down to them like an adult, adults like to do to to young kids uh, yes. I, I thought it was interesting how it conveyed yes. almost a flipping mood with her 
For me, at least. Yes, definitely. Yes. It's very difficult because Hera is supposed to stand in for like one side of like not the virgin whore dichotomy exactly, but like the the like more modern incarnations of that of that become like a three pointed thing, right? We have the virgin, the whore, and the mother as like the three ways of being a woman in sort of like very reductive male centered theory of gender. We like saw this most famously represented in like the Hera Athena Aphrodite competition for the Apple of Paris. Right, but starting off the Trojan War, I, I think that we have to remember as we're making these critiques of Hera, like who definitely is a classist and who definitely does embody like the the imperial nature of white supremacy and white hegemony. To disentangle that representation of her with like common critiques of like motherhood and of certain like yeah. very widespread notions of femininity because of her positionality and the way in which like we similarly with you know like Aphrodite, like she represents also like a different version of of womanhood that Rick Riordan kind of wants, writes, has, has like a really fascinating and potentially toxic interplay with like certain long-held tropes about notions of femininity. Although maybe it's not that bad because Hestia shows up later, although Hestia's not a mother, it's complicated. Um, yes. Hestia is a lot. I'm, I'm looking forward to unpacking that. Um, Very much so. Book. But that is the first third of the Battle yes. of Labyrinth. Whew. Mike and Jackson. First of all, do you believe that... Uh, Given the evidence of what you have just read, <laughs> Persebeth may or may not be the greatest love story ever told. Uh, well, especially unpacking with this whole Hera thing that just happened. There's this interesting thing going on where Hera is using like that motherly instinct. And then like by her saying that the answer to Annabeth's wish is like already within Percy. It, it just seems like that whole relationship thing that I see in a lot of today's men where what they want out of their girlfriend is their girlfriend to just be their mom, which is like the worst <laughs> attitude to have as a man oh. going into a relationship. Oh, it hurts. So it, it seems like in this moment, like she's trying to push Annabeth into doing this like motherly girlfriend type role for Percy. And Annabeth is not having it. Exactly. And that's why I think it's a great love story. We're just at a certain point where Percy and Annabeth are still figuring themselves out. And I don't think Percy is smart enough to be in a relationship yet because I still think he needs to become a little more independent. Right. But I like where things are moving. Yeah. Yes. Thoughts, Jackson? I like them as a couple. They're a heterosexual couple, so it's already knocked down a couple of pegs on my leaderboard. But uh, I'll... I like it for now, because there is no gay couple yet in the Perseverse, the Rick Riordan-verse. <laughs> but yeah, they're fun. They're they're vanilla. Very vanilla. Okay, well. But they're also 14, so like... Yeah, they're 14. They're, I'll tell you what, they're like the tastiest vanilla ice cream that you've had, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, where they, they're still like... Yeah, they down. Yes. They make a great little cameo in the Magnus Chase books. That's really fun as well. We we, we are those. so not there yet, but we will be soon. We it's we're committed soon. Last question: Do you think all of this trouble, all of this stuff, this battle of the camp that we're going into, is worth it? Because our ultimate goal is saving Western civilization. Sheesh, that was, that's the whole goal <laughs> of these novels. Do they state that explicitly? Well, it's saving the gods, which and then there's Represent the late drawn the flame there. of Western yes. civilization. Burn it all down. I think it's all, I think it's fun to root along, uh, you know, for the book purposes. But uh, if if some sort of metaphorical Titan God War could, like, bring uh, American global hegemony crashing down, uh, I say hell yeah. Period. I will, uh, I will second 
what Mike said. He said it so eloquently. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for sharing your personal expertise on this episode. I think we are going to see you back very soon. So everyone, please sit with your feelings about Hera. <laughs> Get ready for a whole lot more Rachel Elizabeth Dare. Ooh. Thank you.